0: I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to our sermon text, which is found in the book of Romans, chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. Romans, chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is... It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise, At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, So that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion.
1: Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, these are weighty words. And we need your help now to get them into our minds and our minds into them. And our hearts engaged with appropriate humility and faith. And so, Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, I invite you to come in power. Downtown, here in Roseville, come, Holy Spirit. Engage the mind and the heart of your people. And may it be a renewed mind and a renewed heart so that we think true thoughts about you and think glorious Biblical vision and feel due affections for you. Lord, help me to unfold this faithfully and grant to this people in these two places to hear the word of God and believe. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. To understand Romans 9, we need to keep the flow of thought from the beginning of the chapter to the end, always in mind. It is absolutely crucial that we understand the crisis that was created in verses 1 to 5 and the solution offered to that crisis in the following verses. So let's get it very clear in our minds. As you keep your Bible open before you, we're going to look very carefully at this text today and next week. In verse 3... Paul said, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, the crisis is that Jewish people, covenant people, Paul's kinsmen, are accursed and cut off from Christ. It's breaking his heart. But what receives the emphasis... In verses 4 and 5 is not the personal crisis, but the theological crisis for you and me. The note isn't struck in verses 4 and 5. Oh, how hard it is for Paul to deal with the loss of his loved ones. That's not the crisis. The crisis is, they are Israelites. Theirs is the sonship. Theirs is the covenant. Theirs is the promise. In other words, God's word has fallen. That's the crisis. It seems as though God's word has collapsed. He's made promises to his people. He's made covenants with his people. He said they're his sons. And now Paul says they are accursed and cut off from Christ. So the crisis that has been created here is for you and me. Why is it for you and me? Because if the word of God has fallen, if the promises don't hold true for Israel, if the covenant with his own Old Testament people breaks down, then what hope do we have that the promise made to us in Romans 8 will hold true? I mean, this chapter comes right after Romans 8. And the glory of Romans 8 is, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And you can hear that. It is God who justifies. But, if the declaration, you are just, forever proves false, Romans 8 crashes to the ground. The crisis created in verses 1 to 5 of many lost Israelites in spite of being God's people is our crisis. And therefore Paul takes three chapters to answer this crisis. All of Romans 9 to 11 is meant to undergird the answer that Paul gives to this crisis. What's his answer? Verse 6. It's the main point of all of this chapter. He answers, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Yes, the Israelites are God's people. Yes, the vast majority of them in Paul's day and to this day are accursed and cut off from Christ and are perishing. No, The Word of God has not failed. That's what he's got to argue for in three chapters. How can that be? How can the vast number of Israelites be lost, the promises of God be made to Israelites, and the Word of God not have failed? That's what all of chapter 9 is about. That's what all three chapters of Romans 9 to 11 is about. Everything is support for this. It gives reasons in these chapters. And in this chapter in particular, in Romans 9, we have some of the clearest, strongest, most forceful statements about the doctrine of unconditional election in all the Bible and about the sovereignty of God in salvation. And what I want you to notice Before we move into these is, they come in the service of verse 6. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. Everything in chapter 9 is meant to undergird that statement. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. Paul does not deal with controversial doctrines because they happen to be intellectually interesting or intriguing to some Christians. He deals with the controversial doctrine because it is so needful if we are to have confidence that the Word of God doesn't fail. He wouldn't bother us, I don't think with mind-bending doctrines if they weren't personally valuable for the sustaining of our faith when it looks in our lives like everything, including the Word of God, has given way. And so I pray that as we move into chapter 9 and we deal with very controversial doctrines, we will not make them into games, intellectual games or word games, but we will feel the weight of what Paul is doing in the rest of this chapter to undergird his answer to the crisis that Romans 8 may not be true for you. And if that's true, then his whole life has been spent in vain. He's written the book in vain. So you can feel what's at stake for the apostle Paul as he enters into chapter 9. I wonder if you deal with truth the way Paul does. Um, Paul is assuming we live our lives, especially in the major crises, by shaping the choices we make and the plans we make and the responses we make to life, by shaping them all according to great God-centered truth about the universe. And so right here I ask you, do you do that? Is that the way you respond to your car and your spouse and your school and your job and your leisure and your health? It's all shaped by doctrine. If not, you need to rethink why you respond the way you respond, and why you plan the way you plan. Because the Bible assumes that Christians build into the framework and structure of their thinking and their feeling and their values and their priorities big, solid truth about God which shapes every response we make. So how are you responding in this world to what it dishes you up? Is it from Romans 9 type truth or is it from the latest opinion poll or article you read or feeling you have? Oh, grant God that we would be responders according to truth. What is Paul's argument then that the word of God has not fallen? In this text, we're going to be dealing with verses 6 to 13. For two weeks for two reasons, for one reason, basically, because Paul neatly divides it into verses six to nine, where he takes one Old Testament illustration of his point and 10 to 13, where he takes another Old Testament illustration of his point. So we're going to divide those into two weeks. But the point is the same over both weeks. He is undergirding the first half of verse six. It is not as though the word of God has fallen. He gives three statements of his reason for saying that, and he gives two Old Testament quotes in verses 6 to 9. That's what we're going to look at. Here's statement number one for why he believes the word of God has not fallen, even though many Israelites are perishing and they have been given promises. The second half of verse 6 is his first of three statements. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, Paul's argument here is that the promises of God always hold true for Israel. But not all Israel is Israel. You see that? They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Yes, the promises are valid for Israel, but not all Israel is Israel. There is a true Israel and there is a physical, ethnic, fleshly Israel. The promises, he's saying, are valid for the true Israel and have never failed them and never will fail them. That's his first argument. Here's the second one. Verse seven. Says it a little differently but makes the same point. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. In other words, he's distinguishing two kinds of children, isn't he? Everybody who is born of the seed of Abraham is a child of Abraham in one sense, but not all the children are children. I'll read it again. I want you to see this in the text. Don't take my word from it here. Huge things hang on this. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. There are children and then inside the children there is a narrower group. The children. Let's call them the true children. So the promises of God, he's arguing, do not fail the true children. They do not fail the true Israel. He's making a distinction between physical Israel and spiritual Israel, or the Israel ethnic and true Israel. Third, his third statement is in verse 8. This time, he does not refer to Israel. He does not refer to Abraham. He states the principle so that you can see what's working. Verse 8. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded or reckoned. It's the same word for the word justified. They are reckoned. As descendants. This he says again. Is why the word of God has not failed. Even though many Israelites have perished. It's because the promises are for the children of promise. The children of God. And not every child of Israelite flesh. Now. When Paul distinguishes here in verse 8 between children of the flesh and children of God, you can see that he means by the term children of God the full saving meaning that it has in 8.16 and 8.21 and Philippians 2.15. Children of God here is over against children of the flesh. So a Jew might say, I'm a child of God. I was chosen of God. And Paul would say, if you use the term that way, then there are children of God within the children of God. There are the true children of God and there are the external children of God. And he makes that clear by contrasting it with those who are children of the flesh. When he says that the children of God are the children of promise, He means they have their spiritual position by virtue of the effective work of God's promise. God makes a promise, and that promise produces a child of promise. And if it doesn't, there is no child of promise, whether they were born of Abraham or not. Now, We need to understand this, and to understand it we need to go to the Old Testament quotes to see where in the world is Paul getting this idea that within the Israel there's an Israel, within the children there's a children, within the children there's a children of God. Where's he getting that? But before I go to the Old Testament with you, let me say these three statements again, lest you miss them. Verse 6, these are his reasons why the Word of God has not fallen even though Israel is perishing. 1, verse 6, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. 2, verse 7, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. 3, verse 8, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as descendants. The promises of God hold true For the children of promise, the true Israel, the true children, they have never, they will never fail them. That's his argument. Now, where's he getting this? There are two Old Testament quotes, both of them relating this time to Isaac. And next week, they'll relate to Jacob. Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob not Esau. Those are the two arguments here. We're only dealing with one of them this week. The first one is found in verse 7. After he says, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, he quotes Genesis twenty-one twelve. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Now, well, that would make absolutely no sense at all if you didn't know the Old Testament background here, which shows how much Paul assumes of his readers. It's amazing. You say, well, how does that prove anything, Paul? What does that statement, through Isaac, shall your descendants be named or be called? And the reason it proves something is because in the context, the issue is, what about Ishmael? Abraham had already had a child. He had an elder son. He had an heir. If God would just let him be the heir, he had an heir. Oh, how Abraham longed for it to be. And it wasn't to be. And God said to him, no. Through Isaac, your descendants will be called. Not through Ishmael, even though he is the firstborn. And so Paul sees something in the Old Testament narrative that begins to point him toward an understanding of the people of God physically and the people of God spiritually. He sees a narrowing down of the people of God within the people of God. Not Ishmael, though he was born of your loins. Isaac. Now, here's the second illustration. It comes in verse 9. It's taken from Genesis 18.10. After saying in verse 8, the children of promise are regarded as descendants, he quotes Genesis 18.10. For this is the word of promise. He's just referred to children of promise. And now he says, this is the word of promise. At this time... I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. How does that argue for anything? The context is absolutely crucial. God had promised Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him, and God had promised Abraham that His children would be like the stars in the sky. And here he was, an old man, and his wife was barren. What is he going to do? You know what he did? Well, let me tell you what he should have done first. He should have trusted God for a child of promise. He should have said, I don't know how you're going to do this. I don't know how you bring into being beneficiaries of the promises. And you should be saying that about yourself right now. I don't know how I ever became one. I don't know how I ever could become one. I am old and she is barren. And there is no human possibility of there ever being a beneficiary of the promises. You've got to see this here. This is the heart of the chapter. What he should have done is said, Father, you are God. You can raise up from stones children to me. I will trust you. And what did he do? He and Sarah conspired to get God out of his pickle. He took Hagar, Sarah's handmaid, slept with her, got himself a child, and then argued with God, let Ishmael. He says, oh, that Ishmael. This is Genesis seventeen eighteen. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And the next verse, God says, no. Sarah, the impossible. Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. And you will call his name Isaac. And that's the context for Romans 9, 9. At this time... Remember now, he's just said, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of promise. As it is written, at this time I will come and Sarah will bear you a son. What does that mean? It means that the children of promise are people whose spiritual being is owing to the miracle working power of God. The birth of Isaac is a paradigm. The birth of Isaac is a parable or a pointer, a demonstration of how all children of God come into being. They are not children of the flesh. You can go over to Galatians 4 and read how Paul spells it out there. Ishmael, born of the flesh. Isaac, born of the miracle working spirit of God. It was a miracle that Isaac was born of Sarah, barren, and Abraham. Too old. And the reason God did it that way is so that this chapter could be written 2,000 years later. So that we would understand that within the people of God, there is a people of God. That within the things that define us humanly, there are things that define us supernaturally and spiritually. And that the promises of God for salvation do not relate to what we are by our human distinctives, no matter who our parents are, but by virtue of who we were born by from heaven. That's what this is about. Paul's answer to the question, how is it that the word of God has not failed if so many in Israel are lost? And his answer is, not all Israel is Israel. Not all the children are children. Not all the children of the flesh are children of promise, that is, children of God. Rather, God sovereignly speaks a promise, let there be Isaac, and there is Isaac. And if you try to get saved any other way than by the sovereign, miracle-working grace of God in your life, you will produce Ishmael Christianity and Esau Christianity. And the church is full of it across America. People who have gotten themselves so-called saved and have learned all the covenant routines and have never been born of God. So Bethlehem, in this Advent, let's understand why the Word of God has not fallen. How should we apply this? Well, we're moving here to the Lord's table. How is it that God is gathering a people for Himself within Israel, and we know now, from those outside Israel. If it takes a miracle to make an Israelite an Israelite, the possibility exists that the same miracle could make a Gentile an Israelite. Which it does. Which is why the new, one, true Israel is made up of Jew and Gentile. Why we can be grafted into the tree of the covenant made with Abraham. Children of promise are not created by fleshly lineage. They're created by divine lineage. And therefore, God can take anybody He wants and make them a part of this people. And the way He did it was by sending His Son in order to purchase that grace for Jew and Gentile and in the cross make them one people of God. So when we go to the table here, we have the Instrument or the means, the cost that it took for God to make you and me into children of promise, children of God, true Israel, true children, not children of the flesh. And what it took for God to establish His Word, God's Word stands today because Christ died in order to purchase the right and justice of God to make Jews Jews and Gentile Jews. O Bethlehem, let us give thanks that God has set His favor upon us, has not left us in the mere physical lineage of a Christian home or a non-Christian home, but has put His powerful promise at work in our lives so that we may taste and know His reality. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I have so much enjoyed this morning the sweet, new covenant, sovereign promise in Hosea chapter 2. I will betroth you to me, Bethlehem, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you will know the Lord. And we know what kind of knowing is meant after a betrothal. Oh, that we might taste the intimacy of communion with You at Your table. Meet us, I plead with You. And commune with us. And in Your sovereign, new covenant way, make us Your own. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.